Welcome to this week's Boss to Boss podcast. In our interviews, we feature remarkable sales and marketing minds doing imaginative things in often unimaginative markets, usually from the world of B2B. This week, we're joined by Sean Jardine, former CEO of Bretherton Solicitors, where he was a champion of change and battler of the billable hour. Since departing, Sean has founded Big Yellow Penguin, a consultancy that advises professional service firms on their sales and marketing, with a particular focus on the concept of value pricing. In our conversation today, we're going to be talking about the obstacles that prevent firms from adopting a value pricing strategy, where the easy wins can be found, and the degree to which this can all be systemized within one formulaic and repeatable model. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. A bit of a generic one to start things off, just to give everything else that follows a bit of context. If you were to describe the greatest challenge facing companies, facing firms looking to implement value pricing, what might you say? How would you describe that? Uh, I think the biggest challenge, Dan, is that it's a paradigm shift. It is a change of culture. It is a big project. It's not a technology tool saying, here, here is something, use this, you'll be fine. Lawyers, you know, speaking as a, a, a lawyer, lawyers have got to want to embrace change. And lawyers are naturally conservative. They're naturally risk averse. Um, they're naturally argumentative. And they don't necessarily like change coupled with the fact there'll be lots of lawyers out there who say we don't need to change the model because we have the billable hour and that works. And to some extent, they might be right. It does work. doesn't mean that the clients like it. doesn't mean that change has not got to happen. And it doesn't mean that they're not leaving value on the table, which in many cases they emphatically are. Absolutely. So when you look at the legal industry, and as you say, maybe it's kind of intrinsic within a certain personality type that is quite dominant within that industry, that actually maybe there is a, a slight resistance to, to change generally, although I'm sure that is something of a generalization. But maybe if that is the case, then are there other industries that also sit perhaps within professional services and that face the same challenges and opportunities but that are just doing a slightly better job of capitalizing on those opportunities and avoiding those those challenges? Are there any particular sectors that you would look at and say, actually, do you know what, this is something that we could aspire to emulate? I think there's the one end of the spectrum, you've got organizations like McKinsey, and they will talk about project-based, and they will talk about what is it the client wants to achieve, what is the outcome, and price a whole project on something like that. I think in the accountancy profession, there's some good work going on there. In uh, America in particular, I think uh, accountants are embracing value pricing. One of the leading authorities on value pricing is an American accountant, a guy called Ron Baker, who's written about four or five books on the subject. And accountants, to a certain extent, have a, a slight advantage over lawyers because they have a client base that has a recurring need. They will come back every year. They've got their tax returns. They've got the company accounts that need doing. And because they're dealing with numbers, they can actually say, well, this is what the value is going to be. I, I can do something that will save you X hundred thousand pounds. With the law, it's slightly different. It's, you know, I, I take the view that law is always a distressed purchase. I don't think anybody ever wakes up in the morning and thinks, yippee, I'm going to spend some money with a lawyer. Clients have and a problem that they need solving. So it's outcomes focused. So people don't wake up and think, brilliant, I'm going to spend X thousand pounds on having a will prepared today because I want a will with bits of Latin in it. They think I need to get a will 
because when I die, I want my kids to be protected. So that their outcome is peace of mind. Same with divorce. That people don't go for a divorce thinking, I really am looking forward to this court documentation I'm going to have to fill in about my reasons for wanting a divorce or here is all my financial information. They want happiness. They want to get out of a relationship that's made them unhappy. And so you've got to focus on the outcome that the client wants to understand the value. And it's the client's understanding and perception of value that is key is because everybody's perception of value is different. I might have a watch on that's worth 50 quid. Some of the, you or some of anyone listening to this might have a watch on that's worth thousands of pounds. They all do the same thing. And actually, do we need a watch anyway? Because we've got a mobile phone that will tell us the time of the date. Why do we wear a watch? And the answer is because we like to. And we might wear an expensive one because it makes me feel good. And, you know, quite often, value is a feeling. It's not necessarily always, you know, can be translated into a number. Absolutely. You mentioned America and perhaps, although I think I'm right in saying is Ron Baker actually Australian, is he? But, but I, I... No, no, Ron, Ron is definitely American. Oh, is he, is he American, is he? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, um, I wonder, if is there a bit of a cultural thing there? A bit of a, because obviously in America, things are a little bit different. They're just kind of culturally a little bit kind of ahead of the curve relative to where the UK market is in terms of how they're kind of looking at that customer experience, how they're defining that 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 question of value. Is there a bit of a cultural thing going on there? It might be that um, people are they're more disposed to having conversation about money. British people are quite reserved when it comes to talking about money. You know, it's there's probably 84% of professional services firms, according to Ron Baker, are still wedded to the billable hour. So it's, it's not a huge proportion that are embracing value pricing. In Australia, it's fantastic when you visit their web, websites and see videos of them burning their timesheets and things like that. And, you know, young people there saying, well, we want to work for a firm that only does value pricing. There was an interesting article about, uh, written by a young Australian lawyer about how people were going in-house as lawyers because they didn't like the culture of working in, in an organisation that has a billable hour. And uh, I, I noticed on LinkedIn this week that there's an American firm who are extolling the virtues of allowing their lawyers to have 40 hours off, non-billable time, 40 hours a, a, a year off, subject to hitting a billable hours target of 1,750 hours. Well, in the UK, you work on a model of 1,400 billable hours. So in, and in the US, it's 2,000 billable hours. And you think, well, how does that work? Because there's not enough time to have a lunch break then. But we'll give you 40 hours off if you hit your target. Answer might be that, you know, the, the, the American model, well, they bill in 15-minute units. In the UK, they tend to do six-minute units. But even then, I've seen lawyers actually said, well, I only sent an email. It only took me 30 seconds to write. Should I just bill for the 30 seconds? And the answer is emphatically no, because you shouldn't even bill for the six minutes. Clients should pay for the 30 years experience that it took you to learn how to reply to that email in 30 seconds. You know? So that's where value lesson comes in. I'm just trying to kind of relate this to my world a little bit, because fundamentally, I guess it's no different. Um, 
one of the challenges, I guess, can be trying to get an assessment of what the value actually is to that to that individual. Because as you say, it can be profoundly different from one person to another. You gave some kind of like consumer-based examples. And of course, within a sort of uh, sort of business context, it's, it's exactly the same. One solution to this one company over here could be worth, you know, four figures to another company over here. Exactly the same work could be worth six or seven figures. How do you go about actually establishing whether it's corporate or or consumer based how do you go about extracting that information from the decision maker so you can actually get a sense so that you don't on the one hand underprice yourself but equally you don't necessarily add on a couple of zeros where it may just never have been feasible to that individual it's all about having a conversation and so that if you have a conversation with the client work on the basis that as we all know, no two clients are the same. The way they're going to communicate with you is different. The way that they will, their attitude to risk might be different. It might be a very risky matter that you're undertaking, and then you want to build that in into your price. It might be that uh, when you're initially engaging with the customer, the way that they're going to give you the information that you want might come in incredibly haphazard. You know, where you think, I've got to spend hours just putting this into chronological order, whereas this other client has sent me the details and they're all in Apple Pie order. It might be, do you like this person? Do you, do you want to work with them? Are they going to be a pain to deal with? And these are things that you can factor in, coupled with the fact, how busy am I at the moment? Have I got capacity to take this on? Can I delegate it? And these are all things that a, a, a lawyer should ask himself at that time. But also be prepared to think, do you know what? You're not a fit. This customer is not a fit for us. And be prepared to turn work away. Now, that, for some lawyers, will blow their minds where they think, I've got to take on every bit of work and I've got to do it and turn it around. And, and I, I'm a passionate believer that, no, you don't. You don't have to have every bit of work and deal with every bit of work. You want more than your fair share of the good stuff. That's what you want. Yeah. Because if you can do a job... If you did two jobs and they're £100 each, or you could get one job for £300, take the job for £300 because actually you're going to do half as much work and you're going to earn more money. And the benefits that flow from that to, to the firm, the, the, the client and the lawyer, you know, the lawyer gets a better work-life balance. In theory, they've then got more capacity if they want to do more work or, or, or their employer wants them to do more work. Better for the firm, better for the customer if they've got an agreed price so that, that, that they're happy with. And lots of people will always think, well, the, the client's shopping around. They're not. In the vast majority of cases, they're not. They might have been recommended to you. And actually, clients, when they approach a law firm, have got four options. They can engage you. They can engage a competitor. They can do it themselves or they can do nothing. Now, they, the fact they're ringing a lawyer actually means that they don't want to do nothing and they don't want to do it themselves. So we're down to, are they going to engage you or are they going to engage a competitor? And if you're a believer that people buy people, there's no reason why you should actually treat every customer the same because they're not. Presumably, there are certain areas of law where value pricing is more easily implemented than than other areas. So, so I guess, kind of, where are the low hanging fruits, and and conversely, which perhaps legal services, you know, represent a bit more of a challenge from this perspective? I think the where you can make 
you know, some quick wins are in areas where you've almost got fixed price already. So those are wills, residential convincing and things like that. Now, I'm not a fan of actually having calculators on websites that show put this value in, it will generate this price. Again, because it's coming back to the thing where every customer is different. Every house, by definition, has to be different. There will be things that are dealing with that. Every lawyer on the other side of the transaction is, is going to be different. You know, if you know that your lawyer on the other side of this transaction is absolutely awful, well, you should factor that into your pricing. But you, with those areas, you have a conversation. And you can have a conversation where you say, well, tell me about this property. Let me find out, okay, the price is one of the factors when you're relocating. Speed is one of the factors. Where, where's the money coming for, for some of this, which lawyers have to ask for? You know, is money being lent by parents? Is this a gift, et cetera, et cetera? Because you know that might complicate it. How many people are going to own this property as one of the factors? All of these things. And when you start having a conversation with people about, you know, probably going to be the biggest purchase they ever make in their lives, their home, um, you can engage with them on a, on a human level, because I could talk to you, you're saying, you know, Dan, you're moving to Oxfordshire. Brilliant, Dan. What brings you to Oxfordshire? Well, I'm relocating because of my job. That's great. And whereabouts are you going to be living, Dan? Oh, well, we're moving to a, a village called Bloxham in North Oxfordshire. Dan, that's a great village. Joiner's Arms has just been refurbished, you know, opens in the new year. It's a great pub. All of a sudden, I'm having a conversation with you as a lawyer about other stuff. Now, if when I come to deliver you the price and I'm 300 pounds more, 500 pounds more than someone else, you might have thought, well, actually, I quite like that guy, Sean, because he, he knows the area. He told me this, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter that you're more expensive because you're not buying on price anyway. You're thinking, do I trust this guy to get me through this transaction? Because my outcome is I want to buy that house in that period and move in on that day because the kids start school and whatever date that is going to be, that's important to me. You want that outcome. And then you have that conversation. And you know, it breaks my heart when law firms get mystery shopped. But sometimes they only get as far as a receptionist to go, how much you're buying for, how much you're selling for, this is the price. Okay, if you want to instruct us, come back. So they've given nothing other than a, a price and ift the work away if you want to instruct us come back well if you train your staff to have conversations with them and then you can actually say well at the end of the conversation i've had with you dan these are the prices etc cetera, etc cetera. should we open a file and get this thing started now do an assumptive close ask for the work lawyers are very bad at asking for the work I just I wonder is maybe one of the challenges that in the same way that this is helpful for the, the decision maker because it gives them clarity and it's not just this sort of ambiguous, well, you know, we'll see how much time it takes and then you'll sort of, you know, get a bill retrospectively, but it's like absolute clarity, this is what it's going to cost. In the same way that that's helpful for the, the customer, does it present more of a challenge for the solicitor because suddenly that, as we say, like people just crave clarity. You know, it's all about sort of maximizing certainty and clarity. Now, from a, a solicitor's perspective, does this maybe inject a bit of ambiguity in a sense? Because suddenly, rather than it being like, well, I think it's going to take me eight hours, it's eight multiplied by my hourly rate. It's suddenly like, well, I probably want to take into account that it, the fact that it's going to take me eight hours and this is my hourly rate. But now I'm also considering 
the fact that, you know, this is a really stressful time for them. So they're kind of really motivated. I'm also taking into account the fact that I've got great rapport with them. I'm also taking into account the fact that I'm um, maybe a little bit less busy this week than I was two weeks ago. And there's probably 12 other things that I'm I'm now going to be sort of factoring in. Is it partly, do you think, the formula suddenly becomes quite a lot more complicated? And I wonder to what degree, if, it, if that is the case, if that is a bit of a sort of perceptual barrier for solicitors, is it possible to then create a list, not making it completely formulaic, but a little bit of a sort of a set of parameters that say, actually, you know, these are the sort of four, five, six questions to ask. And if you ask those questions, then you can arrive at probably a pretty sensible place. Well, it's really interesting you raise that because one of the things I would talk to clients about when they're thinking of implementing this is have a formulaic question scoring procedure where if you're going to say, how has this client been when we have engaged with them on a one to five with five being awful? one being good, you know, what, and then Scott, how busy I am, one to five, five, I'm really maxed. And then at the end of it, you can then say, well, look, I've, I've got mostly fives here. And this set suggests to me as a lawyer, I should really be increasing the value here. And if that value for that customer, that's how they're saying, no, that's, that's too much for me or whatever. And you are allowed, and that, again, the permission of turning work away is very important where you can actually say, you know, my firm trusts me enough to say, if I'm far too busy to do with this at, at the moment, I am allowed to turn work away. Got to have some parameters around that. You don't want to turn away the managing director of your best client necessarily, that, that, things like that. But you can build guidelines into that. And that's why it's a change management program, because you have to think about those things. But also lots of lawyers, especially litigation lawyers, they say, well, how can I price a whole matter? And my answer to that is you don't have to. If you think of dropping a pebble into a lake, you're going to get a load of concentric circles. The centre of that the series of concentric circles, that's what you know. If, if a client comes up to you and says, I have been served with a countercourt summons here and I've got to do something by next week, well, an litiga experienced litigation lawyer will know, yes, we have got to do something by next week. I know what that is and I can price for that because I know what it is. The circle that is out from that is once I've done that, my experience leads me to know we should be thinking about the following. And I can probably price for that. Once you get further out for that, when the other side are going to be responding to me now, it gets a little bit more grey. And then further out, further out, further out, you know, the, the five rings out, you're in the realm of who knows what's going to happen. You don't. So just price for the first two. Because that, the, the, the client coming to you at that stage is like, I've got a problem now. I want to deal with that now. How much is it going to do just to do with that bit? And most litigation lawyers will know that the vast majority of cases don't go to trial anyway. They will settle. You know, I've always been, a, as a litigation lawyer, I was always, I'd say to all clients, all cases settle. It's just that a minority are settled by the judiciary. You know, and so there is a journey that you need to go on and it might be a short journey, it might be a very long journey, and it might be a very long journey because actually your client might utter the words of, this is a point of principle. I want to take this to, well, whew, okay, that's, all, that's always something that should set alarm bells because sometimes that means that reason has gone out the window. And guess what? That's a factor that you should take into account. So just finally then, my impression is that value pricing is just part of a 
well, as you said, like it's part of a broader sort of change management process. Um, And I guess looking at from my perspective, with my sort of marketing hat on, I I would look at various different things, including, you know, the question of productization and better defining the customer journey and developing greater clarity and and sort of depth around the sort of brand identity. Um, And I guess the challenge is if you just approach value pricing in isolation, it's going to be a bit hit and miss. So, so I guess I'd just be interested to get your your perspective on where a firm should be starting that journey if they, if they haven't begun already, um, and and what what are the sort of the foundations they need to establish before really attempting to tackle value pricing in a meaningful way. Step one has got to be the leadership team want to do it, and that they're behind it. Uh, because if it's not led from the front, it will fail. It's got to become part of the strategic plan. If, you know, if it's not part of the strategic plan and it's right up there front and centre, then it won't work. And then you've got to make sure that your firm know this is going to happen and explain the vision, paint the picture of where you're going, and then you're going to create a, a guiding team. You're going to create a little pilot group. And what's interesting is when once that happens, because it's impossible in a big organization to go big bang, you create that little pilot group. And when I was working with a team, they, I was being told, no, we can't version a will product. We can't go gold, silver, bronze on a will product. At the end of the pilot, we had not had only gold, silver, bronzed wills. We'd done the same for lasting power of attorneys. We did the same for actually lease reviews and things like that. Because people are then thinking, well, actually, take a, a detailed lease review. If somebody comes along and says, look, I just want to know what my, as a, a freeholder, what are my repairing obligations in this lease? That's just working at, looking at a discrete point in the lease. You can, you can price for doing that. Somebody says, I want to know what all my freeholder obligations are in the lease. That's a bigger piece of work. And if somebody comes in and says, well, actually, I want to know what all the obligations in this lease are, and I want it written and communicated in such a way that any property manager coming into my firm at any time in the future can read that document and understand those obligations from now until, you know, the next 100 years, that's an even more detailed piece of work. So give people the gold, silver, bronze service. When we go for a car wash, we, we you know, we all know our cars need washing. They're all going to be equally dirty. But on that day, we think, well, our bronze are due today. I don't want to spend that on the gold because what you want to do on that day is your value decision, your price. So it, it is hard. It is a, a change management program, but it, they they can be done. There are firms out there who have been there, walk the walk, talk the talk, and their lawyers, their customers, and the firm themselves are all in a much better place because of that. I can't help but think as well that a company that nails the question of value pricing by extension almost certainly nails other points of their brand messaging their their customer communications as well because so if i think for example um i don't i don't know if you're familiar with them at all it was actually it was the the series of events through which you and i met um uh, they actually attended one of those but it's a company called uh, fairwill who i think are a really nice example of this who um entered the wills market probably about six, six years ago or so now. And um, within a couple of years, they'd become the largest provider of wills within the, the UK. And I mean, just some staggering stats around 
Um, you know, you talk about like totally radically rebuilding the sort of commercial model. I mean, they, they the second biggest player in that space was was I think Co-op at the time, and Co-op had nearly ten times the number of people working. I mean. Fairwell, I think, had about 35 members of staff or something at the time, and they were working on, I think it was about 15% of all wills in the UK. Um, and fundamentally, I think what they were really nailing was that question of value pricing in terms of they were crystal clear that people were extremely worried, and you kind of touched upon this earlier, people were basically very worried about what was going to happen with it. And it was that question of reassurance. So rather than it being viewed as a kind of a burdensome sort of administrative task, they turned it into profoundly emotive experience by asking the question, give me a name of somebody that would be a recipient of a proportion of your will and write the first line of the message that you would communicate to that individual human being. And the chap actually got me to do it. And the the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And and as I say, it was completely transformed what was, as I say, essentially an administrative burden into this totally emotive experience. And you look at every part of their brand messaging through social media, every moment of the customer journey on the website. And, And you could look at a company like Farewell and say, well, it's kind of like a techie startup. And actually, the technology is really rudimentary. I mean, like to my knowledge, they weren't using anything that hasn't been available for the last 20 years. But they were nailing the question of what was actually driving the customer and then just building everything off that. So, so I guess I guess my, my, my question is from your perspective, um, like, do you do you see some sense in that? That if you nail this question of value pricing, are there then sort of ramifications for, I guess, other components of the organization and of the brand? Absolutely. But all you've described is somebody spoke to you in a different way. It's a question of engaging with people. You know, you talk about what might be a unique selling point for a law firm. Well, it might be that we don't build by the hour. We will never present you with an invoice that you've never agreed. You know, so, you know, that you will control the process. We will talk to you about a matter if it goes out of scope, you know, so if you're making assumptions on a litigation matter, say, for example, when we talk, you know, if you're the you're the client, Dan, and we're saying, well, you're telling me I think there's going to be four people involved in this matter on my case. I say, I'll make the assumption that it's going to be four people, Dan. If it transpires later on that we need to interview eight of them, I'm going to say to you, Dan, you remember when we talked at the beginning about four people? It's now eight. I'm afraid for me to interview those additional four, it's going to cost you X. Can we agree that? Yes. And then I'll, let's agree the price. And then I'll, I'll bill you that price that you've agreed. What I won't do is do the work and then present you with a bill that you weren't expecting. Or, t- you know, because that's, that's when, you know, people will bill and duck. I'll, I'll, I'll do the work, I'll bill it, and then I'm going to keep my head down and see what happens. And then customers quite rightly come back and say, hang on, you, you told me it was 2000 Why have I got a bill for 4000 Oh, well, it was for that extra work. You didn't tell me about that. And that's where if you can engage with people on a human level, have that, have that conversation, build that client-advisor relationship that all lawyers aspire to have and very few do because – they don't necessarily have these conversations. They don't necessarily understand their, customer, their clients' businesses inside out. They will say they do, and lots of them don't. But also have the confidence in your fellow lawyer. And this is, again, where you know it goes around where some people think, I don't want to send you, you the client, over to that 
fellow lawyer of mine over there because they're not going to treat you the same. Well, they should. Because if you're having that conversation with them about the, the matter in the same way, the new matter, I'm going to have that conversation with you. What is it you're going to try and achieve, Dan? What does good look like to you? What is a budget? Lawyers don't often ask what the budget is. Ask, what is my budget for doing this piece of work? I might have in mind, it's a £100,000 piece of litigation. You might have in mind the fact I've got £10,000. That's it. Okay, well, let's work within your budget. These are now the options. This is what we can do. Um, and I always take the view that you know, law, law has been around for a very long time. And it's just the way that you apply the process and the conversation with the customers to the customers. You know, I know some people actually hate me talking about clients as customers, but that's that's a debate that you can do in another whole podcast about that. But it is engaging with people, having a conversation, finding out what their perception of the value might be, and then pricing accordingly. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's been uh, fascinating, Sean. I um. I must admit, the more that you've talked, the more that it's kind of made me realize, I guess, as a marketer, I sort of like to believe I fundamentally have a good grasp of, you know, value propositions and what that customer journey looks like and what the real value is that the customer derives from an exchange. But certainly you've said a number of things today that have made me think that I need to, um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe immerse myself in some of this subject matter a bit more than I have. So I no, really, really enjoyed it. Thank you ever so much. Thank you.